0: Thank you. It's great to be here, and I actually really like the weather. (laughs) 350 years ago, the French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal noted that human existence is located between infinities. Nowhere is this more evident than in the mystery of the mind, fashioned from the most minute molecules, proteins, polymers, cells, circuits, and yet stretching forth in contemplation of the furthest reaches of the cosmic order. The human brain, three and a half pounds, the most complex physical structure in the known universe, a hundred billion neurons in networks of such millisecond speed that they integrate, by some estimates, a quadrillion synaptic connections in a fantastic behind-the-scenes choreography that makes possible the thought and movement of real-time life at the level of human perception. But how do we go from chemicals to consciousness, from primary physical forces to the vibrant sensitivity and self-awareness of the human person? Approach to the terms of a physiochemical description, the reductive and analytic method of much of our modern science, we are at an impasse. Leibniz warned us, moreover, it must be confessed that perception and that which depends upon it are inexplicable on mechanical grounds, that is to say, by means of figures and motions. He wanted to say that if we were to create a machine that was able to think feel and perceive, and that we increased its size, walked through it, watched its parts working one against another, that still, we would never see anything that would explain a perception. The astrophysicist Arthur Eddington puts it more plainly, our knowledge of physics is only an empty shell, a form of symbols. It is knowledge of structural form and not knowledge of content. All through the physical world runs that unknown content, which must surely be the stuff of our consciousness. William James may be right. We may never fully understand the how and why of the mysteries of mind. We may never have a mathematical equation that conveys the experience of emotion or the meaning of a moral truth. Yet if we stop If we step back and seek a richer reading of the evident testimony of the phenomenon of life life has lived and experienced, it's possible to draw at least the outlines of a unified vision of the science of human life. From phylogeny, evolutionary origins, through ontogeny, individual development, we can trace the historical process that culminates in the unique and unrepeatable existence of every human being. Such an approach returns us to the recognition of our biological roots. It takes seriously the actual conditions of human existence, as embodied beings evolved in form and function, and embedded within the ecology of the natural world. It allows a conceptual continuity from the most fundamental physical realities to the fullness of human identity, the freedom, mind, and moral awareness spiritual awareness of the human person. When we look back at the evolutionary process that formed us, we are once struck by both its continuity and creativity. At every level, the unfolding of life's diverse forms and functions reveals new and previously unseen dimensions of nature, and so revises our understanding of the nature of nature. To make sense of the emergence of mind, Within living nature, we must consider the challenges of basic survival and the primary processes shaping and sustaining life. While early life forms adapted through mutation and reproduction, more complex multicellular systems soon evolved that allowed individual organisms to adjust to changing environmental conditions. This extension of the biological foundations of functional adaptation was accomplished through an increasing range of vital powers of awareness and action. It's astonishing to realize what these most basic vital powers can accomplish even in the absence of mind. How complex, capable and apparently purposeful a purely mechanical biological system can be. I want to show you a video. This is not even an organism, it's a neutrophil, a white blood cell chasing bacteria. It shows you what a mindless mechanism can accomplish. It's all based on chemotaxis. It depends on the direct chemical signals and a fixed mechanical response. It lacks completely the adaptive flexibility of genuine choice, self-awareness, or will, yet it gets the job done. Did did he get it? (laughs) Good, Good little guy, isn't he? But what is clear is that even this white blood cell has a unifying principle, an inbuilt coherence that organizes and coordinates its actions toward a purposeful end. This unifying principle prefigures what Aristotle called entelechy, or soul, the natural form that animates all living beings in their diversity of kinds. Our term organism comes from the Greek word organum, meaning tool or instrument. The soul is that which organizes, gives coherence, making an assembly of parts into a unified whole. It directs, coordinates, and empowers a telos, a natural purpose and perfection within a living being. With the emergence, earliest emergence, of brains more than 500 million years ago, The limited capacities of perception and locomotion in simple organisms were transcended by specialized programs of integrated organismal response. The first brains are attributed to jellyfish, but this was really just a simple neural net that coordinated locomotion. In more complex organisms, specialized differentiation of the head region with its organs of sensory perception and communication was paralleled internally by cerebral structures capable of processing more complex impressions of the surrounding environment. These capacities, in turn, allowed the extension of life into more varied and challenging environments. Whereas oceans had provided more or less stable chemical content, context and constant temperature, the ascent to dry land required More complex biological regulation of internal ion concentration, body water, and temperature. But in the process, it opened up a vast new range of opportunities. That slide shouldn't have been there. What happened here? (laughs) Hmm. Well, anyway. Um, there's always something wrong with the slides, you know, that's amazing. Um, in any case, the ascent to dry land opened up a whole new realm of possibility. This in turn led to the progressive refinement of integrated motor and endocrine systems that formed the biological basis of the emotions and the foundations of mind. Emotions had their evolutionary origins as coordinated adaptive adjustments such as the postural and visceral changes that place organisms in a condition of readiness of response. For example, fear involves increased heart rate and protective posture. As the demands of sensory perception and action became increasingly complex, organisms evolved a more integrated inner sense of subjective feelings associated with these primary physiological foundations of emotions. Within a rising scale of sensation and self-awareness, Sustained programs and patterns of response came to be motivated and coordinated by an inwardly felt sense of appetite, drive, or desire. Potent but perishable, animal life, by its very character, is precarious being. Desire, prefigured as need, forms the central axis of survival. Consider the power of hunger, for example. This is making you hungry. Consider the power of hunger, for food, or the longing for sexual union, and their importance in sustaining life. Together with awareness and action, desire aligns and empowers the effortful and purposeful processes of organic being. Desire distills as a coherent sense of self, urgently engaged in the essential tasks of life. As a self-subsistent being, an organism is the executive of its own existence. Desire subordinates and coordinates the elemental parts into the cohesive unity of a larger enlivened whole. It regulates and motivates, sustaining effortful engagement that bridges the span across time and distance to the object of action, driving the organism outward into active commerce, with the wider world. The philosopher of biology, Hans Jonas, considers this the essence of animal life. The animal emancipates itself from its immersion in blind organic function and takes over an office that is an official role of its own. Its functions are the emotions. Animal life is thus essentially passionate being. The unconscious processes of plant life are transcended by the inner awareness and purposeful desire that form the central axis of animal life. With further evolutionary adaptation, elaboration of more complex and conscious animal kinds are interwoven in deep articulation with the multifarious forms of the evolving ecological whole. The varied senses there it is, the varied senses are extended and refined, allowing a fuller disclosure of the world, not just in breadth and precision, but in causal connections across space and time. Desire becomes the seed of comprehension and control. Together with awareness and action, it forms the very infrastructure of mind. With the encompassing consciousness and self-awareness of human life, desire distills as a sense of integrated identity, sustaining personal purpose and beckoning beyond to the highest reaches of human life in its aesthetic, moral, and spiritual extensions. But this raises a question that's a matter of bitter dispute in our current controversies over the meaning of mind. Is mind just another mechanism? of primary evolutionary goals, calculation, and computation in the service of mere survival and reproduction? Are we simply robot vehicles of selfish genes? Or do our thoughts, intentions, and aspirations reflect genuine dimensions of freedom, purpose, and personal significance within the cosmos? Charles Darwin's research on orchids surely a category of species to be included among the endless forms most beautiful and wonderful, led him to conclude that the final end of the the whole flower is the production of seed. John Ruskin, the foremost art critic of the Victorian era, objected. The flower exists for its own sake, not for the fruit's sake. And though these controversies eventually undercut Ruskin's religious convictions, he was right, at least at the level of animal life. Regarding means and ends, Jonas goes on to explain, not duration or survival as such, but duration of what, is the question. This is to say that such means of survival as perception and emotion, are never to be judged as means merely, not to be seen purely as instrumental to some other reason, but they should be judged also as qualities of the life to be preserved and therefore as aspects of the end, of the purpose. It is one of the paradoxes of life that it employs means which modify the end and themselves become part of it. The feeling animal strives to preserve itself as a feeling, not just a metabolizing entity. That is, it strives to continue the very activity of feeling. Leon Cass explains, desire, not DNA, is the deepest principle of life. These phylogenetic refinements of living nature The vital powers of action, awareness, and desire culminate in the human form with its capacity of resonant relationality and rationality, intelligence within an intelligible order of being. We are the rational animal through and through, not just in our computational capacities and abstract conceptual thought, but in our very bodily configuration and way of being in the world our awareness, action, and our aspirations. The human transformation to upright form is reflected in nearly every detail of our deep structure, both somatic and psychic. For example, the freeing of the upper limbs and the refinement of the tool of tool, as Aristotle called the hand, promoted the emergence of fine motor control and the cerebral capacities that could coordinate and sustain more complex actions within the world, a unity of comprehension, creativity, and constructive action. Likewise, the unique range and refinement of our varied senses, touch, hearing, and sight, each complementing and cross-referencing each other. In our ancestral origins, as sight replaced smell as the most prominent sense, It allowed rapid perception of objects and actions at great distance. Sight is an incredible sense. It allows things that the other senses simply cannot do, especially perception at distance. Sight allows insight. Furthermore, reason is not literal, but metaphorical. The very structures of our categories and concepts come from the nature of our bodily experience, the world as we know it by living in it. Time, for example, is understood by its representation through the experience of movement in space. These primarily bodily-based experiences then serve as metaphors for abstract concepts, such as the force of a reasoned argument, or the attraction of love. There is no mind apart from and independent of the body, and no pure reason apart from bodily experience, at least in human life that's true. Moreover, our similar experiences, each person having quite similar experiences because of our common body, um, because of our common embodied form, we share many of the terms of experience and therefore of thought and language that make possible complex communication and cooperative culture. Each of these distinctive human capacities is complemented by specialized neural modifications, modules that analyze, integrate, and put into action our unique capacities for understanding and activity in the world. The human brain is three times bigger than would be expected for an ape of our size. Distinct cellular microstructures with highly branching dendrites and greater density of spines, the little connecting terminals, allow more complex interactions and interconnections between brain cells. This hierarchy of neural refinement converges in the prefrontal cortex, the center of abstract analysis, planning, decision-making, and rational comprehension and control, a brain region five times larger in humans than in chimps. This increasing freedom breadth of awareness and self-governance is, in turn, extended by the extraordinary adaptive benefit of the creative imagination. Here, the primary principle, first expressed as mutations of matter, is extended and transcended by permutations of mind, the self-generated mental production of possibilities, independent of the constraints of immediate physical reality. Grounded in the raw materials of memory, The symbolic mind is capable of detaching image from object, recombining images in new ways, envisioning scenarios and sequences apart from time and space and anticipating their implications and outcomes. This is yet another powerful form of freedom in which the organism can imagine possibilities and try them out. It's kind of a dress rehearsal without the expense of time and risk of resources in the process. The human capacity for imagination, however, goes far beyond adaptive anticipation. Imagination is not merely replayed memory or imitation, but envisioned creation, forming mental images, maintaining them in the mind, and achieving their realization signifies intention, planning, and implementation of ideals. This imagining and realizing of ideals is the fullest manifestation of natural human freedom. Whereas most creatures exist in an unbroken immediacy of life, humans have the capacity to draw both the past and the future into the present from learning stored as memory and anticipation through creative imagination. The The immediacy of animal existence becomes the mediated flexibility and freedom of human consciousness. Together with the ceaseless drive to organize the unexplained, which has been called the cognitive imperative, I think we might better call it the cosmological imperative because we try to make a coherent whole out of what we think about. Together with this, these drives, the capacities to calculate, extrapolate and recombine are used through imagination to reconfigure that which is into that which could be. While most creatures are pushed by biological and ecological exigencies, we are pulled into the future by our desires, dreams, and images of fullest flourishing. From the human capacity for imagination and the drive to pursue the possible comes something unprecedented in the history of nature the freedom of aspiration toward an envisioned ideal. The human ascent to a coherent moral ideal is the fullest extension, the culmination of the most profound developmental thrust in living nature. Desire, in this case, moral and spiritual desire, desire, not DNA, is the deepest principle of life. The drama of this phylogenetic process and its evident moral meaning is replayed in the developmental unfolding of every human life. Microscopic and without evident human form, the single cell, the union of sperm and egg, contains within itself the distillation of nearly four billion years in the history of life. The earliest stages of human development serve as the indispensable and enduring foundations for the powers of freedom and self-awareness that reach their fullest expression in the adult form. New insights from developmental biology are deepening our appreciation of the dynamic unfolding of emergent being and the formative role of sensory input, action, and emotion. The first brain cells appear by the fourth week of gestation and the first networks of interconnected cells by the fifth week. With the exponential momentum of development during early embryonic phase of human development, the brain adds, at one point, as many as 250,000 new nerve cells per minute. By the tenth week, a fetus can suck its thumb, and 80% have already established their preference of handedness. 10th week. It's about that big. By the end of the second trimester, emotional expressions such as laughing and crying are evident. And muscular motions not seen until the end of the second year of life after birth are already observable in the weightless suspension without the fluid of, within the fluid of the womb. In that fluid, it's sort of like being in space. We can move without the resistance of gravity and Babies do a lot that they're going to do later, while they're in the womb. Likewise, there are clear indications of likes and dislikes, pleasures and pain. Learning begins. The baby's future dietary preference, for example, are conditioned by the mother's diet. And the pattern and tone of the mother's speech sets the foundation for the later acquisition of language. Moreover, even purposeful actions are apparent. One study of fetal motion reports, this is a quote, by 22 weeks of gestation, the movements of the fetus seem to show the recognizable form of intentional actions with kinematic patterns, that is motion patterns that depend on the goal of the action, suggesting a surprisingly advanced level of motor planning. For example, the motions baby moves its hand toward the eye, are more cautious and controlled than motions directed to less sensitive surface areas of the body. This self-exploration and active extension outward continues in the newborn, where the earliest emotions and active movements reveal what the psychologist Andrew Meltzoff calls the scientist in the crib an extension of understanding and patterning of personal identity and sense of place within the physical and social world. It is here in the stretching forth of intentionality that the most primary expressions of human nature and human mind are evident. A thoughtful reconsideration of the actual operations of our self within the world will lead us to a recognition of the inseparable connection between conscious experience, memory, and personal identity. Through conscious intention, we place ourselves and our actions on the world within the circle of cause and effect. In experiencing the connection between free agency, action, and outcome, we probe and penetrate the world, learning at once both the nature of the world and our place and purpose within it. Each experience is consolidated as memory, flexibly available to be recalled for specific situations while providing the platform for both continuity of personal identity and an ever wider comprehension of the world. And just ponder what it is that a baby needs to ascend to to understand the world it's in. First, there's a vague sensation and then greater clarity then genuine perception, then pattern, within pattern, something that has more meaning, pattern and picture and purpose, and finally the comprehensive understanding of its place in the whole. That was all the tiles on the front of Stanford Memorial Church. I want to stop now um, for a moment and show you some specific cases of of, um, neurologic phenomena that to speak the special nature of the human mind. So the first one is a video of a, of a monkey, and this, the reason I want to show you this is because this will give you some idea what a newborn baby is actually doing as they stretch forth into the world exploring and trying to learn how to both operate and understand within the world. This monkey has a little microprocessor, that's that little grid of of spines placed on top of its cortex. They take the skull off and they press it down onto the open open, um, cortex. And then those are monitored by a computer, they signal a computer and it monitors, and the computer then operates a robotic arm. The monkey's arms are bound to its side, so it's not making any muscular motions. The robotic arm is controlled entirely by its thoughts. He tries to make a little muscle motion so they don't do any good, but he tries to think his way into getting the robotic arm to bring his marshmallow to his mouth. With astonishing dexterity, a monkey reaches out to grab and turn a handle with a robotic arm controlled not by its hands, but directly by its brain. With the power of thought, it can alter the speed and direction of the arm, twisting the joints to home in on its target. It shows no signs of distress from the wires leading from electrodes in its brain to a computer. The reward for each turn of the handle, a drink of water. The baby must do something fairly similar. It must experiment and thereby recruit patterns of neural connections to refine its motor action and even its thoughts, no doubt. Um, just imagine how a baby learns to get its spoon to its mouth. Moreover, there's an astonishing plasticity. The brain itself adapts to the circumstances trying to master or the salient issues in its environment. This, These are three examples on this one slide of alterations of sensory perception. In every case, the brain accommodates to the demands by expanding, or contracting, or some special distillation of action in cortical areas that otherwise would be used differently. Moreover, um, you can teach a person who is, is sighted to use Braille, but it works better if you blindfold him, because then the, the visual areas are actually recruited to analyze the touch sensations that he's getting from the Braille. Moreover, uh, if, you, if you artificially, we do this in monkeys, not humans, artificially reroute the nerves that normally take information to the eye and direct them to the auditory cortex, the hearing cortex, it isn't just mere recruitment and the use of spare computing power, the auditory cortex actually reconfigures itself to optimally, optimally decode the visual signals. What is at the base of this is something in the mind that wants to extract information and operate effectively. It's an amazing thing. What is it? How does it know to do this? Uh, something in there is organizing and extending, distilling our understanding and operations. Um, moreover, in the cases of stroke, this same process takes place. After stroke, the mind will recruit the brain in new and more functional ways uh, versus what it was left with after the stroke. Furthermore, it's possible to, at least early in life, take out large sections of the brain and things will be recruited to, to compensate. In this case, this poor little girl had to have half of her, her upper brain, her, her, one of her hemispheres had to be removed. The, the pediatric neurosurgeon who did this, Ben Carson, was a fellow member of the President's Council with me. And Ben's a very nice guy, by the way. I think he's going to run for president, but we'll see. Um, Anyway, uh, Ben performed this operation on this little girl, Alexandria. Having done more than 80 hemispherectomies, removing whole hemispheres since 1985, he was optimistic. He said, if you see the patients who have had hemispherectomies, you're always amazed, he said. Here they are, running, jumping, talking, doing well in school. They're able to live a normal life despite losing half their brain, almost half their brain, normal, happy life, including creative artwork. That shows you the black areas where part of her brain is missing. There she is an adult and she's an artist. So mind itself is doing this in the absence of actual motion um, or external sensory input, it does it as well. Here's a study where they got they had a lever and people had to, to do something to it was being used to uh, for therapy to to bring function back to, to an area of the of the of the sort of the fingers and it turned out that if if they con- did a control study where people actually pushed the lever it was only a little bit more effective than if they just imagined pushing the lever. Isn't that astonishing? Just imagining, and now, about a month ago, a paper came out that said muscles actually strengthen when, they, when you imagine contracting. Now, that was great for couch potatoes. Um, <laughs> moreover, it's possible to recircuit the brain in its functions. This is a study of obsessive-compulsive disorder, where actual ideas reshape the brain. Likewise, a study of pain, where watching the images of the brain and what lights up, one can shift what lights up, areas that are recruited and actually decrease the amount of pain, at least short term and maybe even long term. And this is an interesting study. This is a Chinese study about Chinese Christians. They tested people's personal evaluation of, of the virtue of other people. On the top, is the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex and the bottom is the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Uh, When we evaluate other people as though though we're looking at them objectively, we use the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. But it turned out in these Chinese Christians that when they evaluated themselves, instead of using the, the, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, they actually used the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. They stepped out of themselves and looked more objectively at themselves, the way God might see them, not egoistically or defensively, but dispassionately. Moreover, it turns out that the mind, its thoughts, religious faith, actually correlates with with increased longevity, health. And this... Stephen has never seen the Eternal City from above before. After only a 45 minute helicopter flight, we'll ask him to draw a five this, and a half yard this is panoramic paper of the historic city centre. This guy has Without never seen Rome before. At. They take Stephen him up in a helicopter and watch what happens. Five and a half yards of paper can look scarily empty. The amazing thing, Stephen starts the drawing as we would, with the Church of St. Peter's. But he doesn't do any sketches, nor roughing out of the space for the drawing it's as if the panorama already existed within his head with all the proportions, all the roads, all the details. A little miracle. At the end of the second day, Stephen is a good halfway through his creation. If we could turn the lights down a little, we'd see this better. Anyway, what happens is, he does whole panorama of Rome and only gets a couple of windows wrong and a few little arches. He'd never seen it before. It shows you what amazing capacities there are in the human mind, if recruited properly, but it also turns out this, this fellow, unfortunately, cannot operate very effectively in many domains of the world. He's got a sort of laser beam focus of capacities. The human being actually is a general purpose organism. The natural capacity for comprehensive understanding and capable action in the world is based on a breadth and balance of neural capacities. And it is indeed the highest adaptation in the history of life. Ultimately, it's the key to both our species' biological success and our sense of spiritual significance. We do not want to create people like that savant fellow. We want wise people with balanced capacities, penetration into the depths of reality in its full scope. To understand this more deeply, we need to explore how desire operates at the level of life embedded within the matrix of both biological and social existence. Advances in neurobiology are clarifying the connection between desire and reward and their role in learning, identity formation, and personal and social development. At first, researchers thought that they had located a single pleasure center, but further studies delineated a more distributed reward circuitry with multiple connections and varied contributions in the mediation of pleasure and its purposeful connection. The elucidation of these circuits has led to more recent work focused on the role of the neurotransmitter dopamine. Recent research has established the ancient phylogenetic origins of the reward system and the pervasive role of reward in shaping the full range of animal behaviors. It is now clear that dopamine, far from being simply a pleasure chemical, is an essential element in circuits modulating and coordinating motivational, emotional, cognitive, motor, and endocrine functions. The biology of desire is the central axis, uniting all aspects of animal life, both mental and behavioral. These discoveries have, in turn, allowed scientists to identify distinct components of the reward system and to begin to gain insight into the relationship between pleasure, performance, and pathologies of desire. It's now clear that reward plays a crucial role in learning by setting up systems of anticipatory response and goal-directed action. Two disorders in the operation of desire make this plain. There is a rare neurological condition known as athym hormick syndrome. It's characterized by extreme passivity and apathy. People just, be, they just, it's like they're not there, zombies, we'd say. From the outside, it appears to be a loss of ability for voluntary action. But from the inside, it is experienced as a lack of self-motivation. These patients report a nearly complete absence of mental life, a mental blank. Yet if commanded from the outside, they are entirely capable of thought and action. So it appears that the motivation it appears, it appears that motivation constitutes more than subjective meaning it is the very infrastructure of mind desire in the sense of quest is essential to having a mental life at all in california we used to say you are what you eat it is perhaps more true to say you are what you want Desire is more than pleasures Define and sum up a personal identity. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The second disorder is pervasive, and its meaning is obvious to all of us: out of addiction. Of course, the tragic consequences of inappropriate connections between stimuli and anticipated reward are everywhere evident in human life. The power of addiction appears to be not so much a desire for reward as such has a compelling sense of wanting driven by an overpowering feeling of lack, defect, or deficiency. Addicts hate their addictions generally. This primary biological and social role of desire and its power to disorder human life is dramatically underscored in a report from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Beyond the personal tragedy of addiction and its damaging effects on families and communities, a recent estimate of cost of subject, this is actual cost of substance abuse and addiction, says that state, federal and local governments cost, it costs them more than $468 billion a year. A more thorough and thoughtful examination of the root causes of addiction reveal a broader significance to desire and its disorders and deficiencies in human social and spiritual life, and further insight in the formative force of the human soul and its compelling quest for completion of being. Far from a simple behaviorist model of positive and negative valence in pleasure and pain, desire is inseparably central to our social and spiritual quest. In its natural role, desire is crucial in the healthy formation of personal, social, and spiritual life. The story of this social and spiritual extension of desire is being illuminated by fascinating findings regarding the tiny molecule, the neuropeptide oxytocin, an ancient neuromodulator that plays a powerful and pervasive role in a range of basic biological processes related to reproduction and sociality. Oxytocin is released in both sexes during sexual orgasm, maintains uterine contractions during childbirth and plays a central physiological role in the production and release of breast milk. These oxytocin-driven reproductive functions appear to set the relational foundations for broad dimensions of human sociality, later sociality. Romantic affiliation, for example, activates oxytocin-rich brain areas. During pregnancy, oxytocin levels rise for both mother and father and show sustained synchrony synchrony in the postpartum period as long as six months later. Likewise, the earliest and most intense interpersonal experiences of the infant are in the context of oxytocin's uh, oxytocin's role in lactation and bonding. Upwards, Through the life cycle, oxytocin appears to establish and sustain positive social interaction. It intensifies social interactions, alters the speed and accuracy of recognition of social signals, such as facial expressions, vocal tone, and body motions, and promotes the encoding and retrieval of social memory. Through these basic cognitive recruitments, oxytocin facilitates cooperation, promotes trust, and reduces anxiety. Uh, especially anxiety towards strangers. You can give oxytocin, and people are more comfortable trusting strangers. Moreover, this establishes a whole new level of biological inclination and reward. Neuroeconomist Paul Zack explains, oxytocin constitutes a positive side of personal interactions. It literally feels good when somebody seems to trust you, and this recognition motivates you to reciprocate. He goes on to explain that oxytocin causes the release of dopamine in deep midbrain regions of the reward centers. Now, I know this is true. Um, this is my wife holding our, one of our little children, and when I come home from travel, I have to get my oxytocin fix, and my children make sure that I'm not deprived. <laughs> this is my little four-year-old. Um, anyway, it's very real in human life, this the pleasure, if you will, of positive human interrelations. It appears to play a crucial role in binding children to parents and later sustaining the social solidarity essential to cooperative community. At every level, oxytocin seems to play an important role. From earliest childhood, earliest infancy even, in the context of of lactation's oxytocin-driven bond Driven bonding, there is an interactive engagement between mother and child that sustains a shared conversation of reciprocating rhythm and unifying emotional resonance. Children are born attuned and attentive to faces. Neonates preferentially touch faces and within days discriminate their mother's face and that of a stranger. Within just nine minutes of birth, infants turn their heads and eyes toward a normal image of a face, but not toward a scrambled image of facial features. Furthermore, we are uniquely sensitive to the dynamic changes and emotional expressions of faces. Special ensembles of cells in the brain respond only to faces, and some respond to specific facial expressions and directions of gaze. Within 36 hours, some researchers actually claim 40 minutes of birth. Infants are able to discriminate among facial expressions and reflect them back in the facial movements of their own brows, eyes, and mouth. It appears that there is innate ability to correlate the sensory information of a visually perceived expression with the muscle movements necessary for imitating that expression. And now they've found cells that seem to operate this way so called mirror neurons, or really convergent sounds, where when we observe somebody making a motion, we feel that in ourselves and therefore um, imitate it either slightly or specifically. Moreover, it seems that evolution has shaped parental behavior to complement babies' auditory preferences. Adults in all cultures talk to babies by ra- when they raise, they raise the pitch of their voice, slow the rhythms, and make the melody more sing-song. Babies in turn shift their gaze to the region of the eyes while they listen to speech and thereby gain additional complementary source, sources of emotional communication and deeper penetration into the life of the other. As psychiatrist Daniel Stearns, that, that's the mirror now, as psychiatrist Daniel Stearns notes, the distance between the eyes of a baby at the breast and the mother's eyes is about 10 inches, exactly the distance for the sharpest focus and clearest visions of a young infant. The infant follows the flow of the mother's emotional expressions and their vital association with the process and patterns of events. Her smile exerts its natural evocative powers in him and breathes a vitality into him. It makes him resonate with the animation she feels and shows. His joy rises. Her smile pulls it out of him. Likewise, the mother's exquisite responsiveness to what the baby does, moment to moment, binds the infant and and builds a sense of connection and a growing awareness of his role in the dynamics of their engagement. By age three and a half months, the baby can control his gaze and initiate face-to-face encounters, gaining a sense of himself as an agent or actor who can alter the dynamics of interaction. In a process that Stearns calls attunement, there is a reciprocity of small repeated exchanges, a kind of facial duet in which the mother responds, not with an imitation exactly, but with a reply that lets the baby know she has understood his feelings. These small, this, this is a good one, but the small attunement gives the infant the reassuring feeling of being emotionally connected, a message which mothers send about once a minute when they interact with their babies. This interaction of joint initiation and mutual creation is an improvisation with themes and variations, back and forth, a kind of conversation of feelings, an unspoken communion of mind. As psychologist Daniel Goleman notes, mutual gaze provides the structure for these interactions. Gazing back and forth, rather than talking back and forth, is the action. This provides a crucial lesson for pure social interaction, the ties of attachment, and the nonverbal foundations upon which language will later be built. Mutual gaze is indeed a world within a world. Looking into the eyes that are looking back into yours is like no other experience with another person. You seem to feel and follow vaguely the mental life of the other, and this early experience of infancy, infancy forms the foundations for deeper engagements of this kind of interaction in love relationships that continue this great cycle of life and love. This primary grounding of communication and trust based on shared biology, bridged by empathy and built by personal interactions, provides the foundations for language, moral awareness, and cultural community. The infant's mind awakens to the world, and establishes a sense of trust. The philosopher Charles Taylor writes, the genesis of the human mind is not monological, it's something that each accomplishes on his own. In the the basic congruency of feelings established between mother and child is slowly extended onward to a greater exploration and evaluation of new and unfamiliar experiences. In a process of social referencing that builds a common set of values, the infant will point and gaze at an object establishing joint attention and then observe the mother's reaction. The mother's response carries first emotional contact and later specific semantic contact. contact. A web of meaning is formed within this linguistic of empathically grounded symbolic gestures, the coded concepts on which all human cultures are constructed. With language, we move beyond the imperatives of the presence, present to a creative construction of cultural meanings and values. We weave an interpretive story rich with ideals and aspirations, a narrative by which we navigate the world. In a kind of reinvoicement, the child begins to structure his understanding of the world, the very pattern of his thoughts, by the echo of the words of others. In this frame of social significance, of the self, its place, the self is placed within a pattern of moral meaning and transcendent truths. Slowly, the child becomes connected to the society in which he is born, raised to a realm of beliefs and hopes, inaccessible to an isolated individual. The child psychologist Jerome Kagan describes how moral awareness develops within this empathically grounded sociality. A moral motive and its attendant emotions are as obvious a product of biological evolution as digestion and respiration," he says. In an orderly orderly developmental progression, a child begins to crystallize a sense of self and other, and to differentiate animate and inanimate beings, and to discover the inner mental world of private beliefs and intentions. With conscious identity comes awareness of the identity of others, Within this profound resonance of mutual understanding between the second and the third year of life, the child develops a, an appreciation for the symbolic categories of good and bad and learns to apply moral categories to their own actions and thoughts. The child's sensitivity to the propriety of, of his behavior to a larger concern with right order and relationship, to things grows. Discrepancies such as broken toys and shirts, missing buttons, trouble the baby. And he begins a lifelong search for a coherent and harmonious explanation of the larger order of the world. Within a growing understanding of the relationship between present actions and future outcomes, a child begins to develop a conflict between acting on present desires and recognizing their consequences to himself and others. Kagan goes on to explain, before the age of five, children have difficulty governing their actions. I want to show you briefly a video. This is a study done at Stanford. You'll see what they do here. here. Alright, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. This is speeded sped up of course, but So with greater maturity and, therefore, greater freedom, um, the freedom itself becomes increasingly the central moral axis guided by the emotional pull of empathic communion. It leads to the poignant drama of the individual self in the quest for a sense of moral worthiness. This personal quest for ethical identity provides the fundamental platform for cooperative community and continuity of culture, and the wider search for spiritual harmony with the deepest source and significance of life. That's the drama of human existence. We've moved from biology to biography, from the fundamental forces of matter to the distilled consciousness, freedom and moral awareness of the human person. Here, between Pascal's infinities, the full mystery of this creature of the earth becomes evident. Brought forth from primary material substance, we sense a destiny of human life that mysteriously transcends the biological processes that formed us. Within the strife and struggle of earthly life, we become acutely aware of the central significance of both suffering and self-sacrifice, conscious and comprehending, we are lifted to the level of love, beholding with wonder our place and possibility within the cosmos. Thank you very much. Sorry. I'm afraid we won't have time for questions on stage today. Dr. Hobart will be out in the lobby to greet you afterwards. I'd like to thank once again our underwriters for today, the ICN Foundation, and thank all of you for coming out in this cold weather. Have a great afternoon.